Produced by PI Media. Abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. Throughout the series, our guests point out Israel's success in managing its water sector and its ability to sustain agriculture, industry and household consumption in a water-scarce region. Water in Israel is available on demand 24-7 and the water quality is high. Here's Seth Siegel, author of Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. Israel has no shortage of water. Israel makes a decision to unify its governance in the largest governing body possible. They basically have a complete watershed mentality, which is we have only a few sources of water in Israel, they say, a few rivers, one lake, some aquifers, and we're going to manage that water intelligently. As a result of that smart governance, Israel's had extraordinary outcomes. Today's episode deals with a tricky situation Some might say boring topic of governance and regulation. Two are with me in the studio, Tommy Shaw, Senior Deputy Director General for Regulation at the Israeli Water Authority, and Oded Distel, Head of Israel Newtech. Hello. Morning. Good morning. Tommy, a complete watershed approach. What does it actually mean? It means that we start with very professional hydrology. And very innovative hydraulics, but it's not enough. It has to become as a one system with regulation, with governance and with water pricing. And this whole system has to work on one way in order to utilize the water resources in an optimized way. To ensure sustainable supply for all consumers. Actually, in Israel, we have two. Two sources of fresh water and two sources of manufactured water the natural uh, water resources are the Sea of Galilee we have the shore aquifer and the mountain aquifer Israel is sitting along the Mediterranean so it was easy for us to develop the desalination plants on the Mediterranean and we take the sewage and we treat it to Then using it after treating the water, it's actually producing this new resource of water, which is treated sewage. And you regulate everything. Right. You have no competition, the Water Authority. Well, first of all, the Israeli law states that water in Israel belongs to the public. This is a very, very strong say. And from it comes that no person in Israel owns the water that... That he sits upon if it's groundwater or sits by if it's surface water. No private ownership of water in Israel. All the water is owned by the public. And when you produce the water, you have to do it by a license given by the state, and you also have to pay for it. The past 
two minutes, we talked about everything that regulation has to offer, and Israel is unique in that sense. The Israeli model is not something that you can replicate, can you? I don't think any state can actually replicate what happens in any other state because uh, situations are different and the starting points are different. Culture is different. The way people see this resource is different from place to place. So replicating it is not, I think, the right approach. The right approach is to see what you have in your country, what are your needs and what are the deficits that you are trying to cope with. And they try to see what is the right model to adopt for your country. Israel has a lot to offer, I think, with our model in many aspects of it. And for us, it works as a whole that gives the whole system what we see as almost optimal way of operating it. And you're bringing me now to the next excerpt from a conversation I had with Seth Siegel. Let's listen. If I had to put it into two areas, I would say it goes to culture and it goes to pricing. When you have a culture that is water respecting, you get a better outcome. When you charge a price for water, you get a better outcome. And I'll tell you why. In the first case, you get a better outcome because everybody sees it as part of their job. It's not just taking a shorter shower. It's also being supportive of proper water pricing, being supportive of having a meter in your home. It's supportive of thinking about how you can use less water if you're a farmer, selecting crops that are less water intensive or irrigation practices that are less water wasting. So that's the culture part. The economic part is that when you pay the real price for your water without subsidy, and the problem is everywhere there's subsidies, not in Israel, mm-hmm. but almost everywhere there's subsidies. And so when people finally pay the real price for water, they act in rational ways that market economies always get people to act. Now, when it comes to culture, Israelis know by heart nursery rhymes about every drop matters and we ask the rain to come and uh, feed our fields and our crops. But what does it actually mean to pay the real price of water? Or that there's an economist. Why is it so crucial? It is crucial because when you pay an actual price, then you can build uh, reasonable business models around it. And then you have a sector that is functioning and sustainable for the long run, which is quite unique in Israel and uh, very different in many other places around the world where water is perceived as something that uh, should be provided by the government, the municipality, whoever. And people don't see the connection between getting water water 24/7 in good quality and the fact that uh, it costs money. Tell me this is part of what you're regulating, correct? Yes, definitely this is one of the most uh, important parts of regulation. Looking at the water chain, we're looking about a very, very long chain. It comes from the origins, whether it is from natural origins or from desalination. Then you have to take the water from the origins and put them through the conveyance uh, systems, which also costs a lot. You bring them to the entrance of the cities and the towns, and then you have to distribute them to the different consumers. 
Then there is sewage. You have to treat the sewage. After treating the sewage, we are reusing the treated effluent and put it back mostly to irrigation. And you want to tell me that all of this costs money? Um, yeah, most of it. <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately. <laughs> costs um, a lot of money. Many times in many places in the world, and it has also been in Israel, water prices were actually underpriced. They were not covering all costs of water. And this has caused many problems, such as untreated sewage going to rivers or to the sea, or a lot of water unaccounted for, a lot of leakages going from the pipes. And I think one of the biggest challenges... is that most of the water infrastructure and the sewage infrastructure is unseen to the eye because it's underground. So every time that a mayor of a city has to put his priorities with the budget that he has, hidden infrastructure would go to the end of the line. So, so how does regulation solve this problem? What we did in Israel, we took everything that has to do with water from budget to water prices. So the whole chain of producers and suppliers pay and sell the water in a way that cover all their costs. When a consumer in Israel pays for water in the tap, then he also pays for treating the sewage and all the other aspects of water and sewage usage in the systems. But then I believe that two of the major water governance revolutions that we had in Israel was two tiers of decisions of taking the decisions upon water issues from politicians to professional level. Meaning? And this was done on the governmental level that all of the water issues were taken out of the government and the ministers and were put in one professional governmental water authority which is an authority of bureaucrats when did that happen what year on 2007 the water authority was established in its board of directors seat the different representatives from the different ministries but also on the bureaucrat level and then thinking about municipal local water management we took the water management from the municipalities and by law municipalities had to establish water corporations that would handle all water and sewage issues that are inside the municipality and this has made a huge change in Israel hundreds of millions of dollars that were not invested in this market for many years were invested during one decade. Just because you took the money out of the politicians' hands? Because what would happen usually in Israel beforehand? The main part of it is that the revenues from the water comes only into water. So if once municipalities can take the revenues from the water and put them in roads and lights and education and other important things, but not water itself, now the water corporations can take the water revenues and put them only in investments in water and sewage. And this has made this sector a huge step forward than where we were before it. Who is Felicia Marcus? Felicia Marquez is the chair of the State Water Resources Control Board in California. 
And she's actually the water person in California from the time that the big drought started there. You can see her in every, I think, TV and every broadcast talking about water everywhere. She's appointed by the governor of California. Now, I'm asking who she is because I had the opportunity to interview her during WOTEC 2017 in Tel Aviv. And as you said before, the Israeli model is unique. You can't really duplicate it. And I asked her to talk a bit about California. We have a very fragmented system with over 400 water agencies. That's just the ones, the large agencies that serve water to over 90% of the urban population. We literally have thousands of small water agencies, a very fragmented system. How can you run a system like that? It's not a system. It's a series of pieces. And we have levers and authority. We have more authority over the quality than we do over the quantity. And so you have to do it through regulation and emergency regulations. I think our biggest challenge is trying to make the change to a more coherent system without taking it over, but to try and rationalize the system a little more. And the water agencies don't like it. quite as much. I understand it's a big change, but we've tried to do it reasonably. We go to the legislature. The legislature has given us more authority to do more, but it's still, it's baby steps, but I'll take them because each one of them has helped us lay a foundation for a more thoughtful system. And I'm not someone who thinks it needs to be controlled from Sacramento because I come out of local government. And I had enough of federal and state people who didn't know what was happening on the ground think they knew better because they were at the federal and the state government. The Israeli beast is completely different to what's going on, especially in the United States. Definitely. So it starts with the law and with culture. Of course, in the United States, a private entity is something that is almost uh, sacred. And the person that lives upon the water, the water belongs to the person, which is opposing so much the perception that we have on this issue. I think the challenge that California faces is huge. And it needs a lot of tolerance and a lot of persuading people to do the right thing, although the law doesn't have all the um, force that it has in Israel. I think Felicia Marcus is such a wonderful example for the right person in the right place. At the end of the day, we need to change the uh, mindset. of politicians, of political leaders, of the general public. And I think it's something that by now most people understand, but everybody is kind of afraid of the big jump that needs to be done. And uh, it can be done through legal means or through general acceptance that uh, reforms has to be done. At the end of the day, we need to do those reforms, those uh, dramatic uh, changes in the way that we manage water. And it seems that the situation is ready for that. We just need those brave people to come up, take the political risk in a way and say, this is the time. So... Back to Felicia Marcus with a very interesting example of how you can do, I guess, both. During the drought, only to be safe rather than sorry, we did do emergency urban conservation regulations and asked urban areas to cut back by 25% overall. And largely what we were aiming at was overwatering of lawns. That is not an essential part of life. How green your lawn is... 
during the time of the worst drought in modern history when folks in small rural communities have no water to drink is not that much of a hardship. So part of the advantage I think we have is that we're not as water short. Sometimes we don't have it in the right places. But we have a lot of opportunity between greater efficiency, transitioning out of lawns, to nonetheless beautiful ornamental landscapes. I would say we need more trees rather than fewer trees, less Scotland-type green lawns in July. But that's a relic of the generation before us. When rebates were put out, over half a billion dollars in Southern California gone in two weeks because people knew that it was a luxury they didn't necessarily need, and with some help, happy to transition to a drought-tolerant landscape. We put over a billion dollars into recycling. We've done streamlining of recycled water permits for uh, outdoor use, groundwater recharge, and even leaks. By buttoning up the system, our urban areas lose up to 30% of their water in leaks. That's a lot of water. And then in agriculture, where the economics are a little more challenging, we've got about 50% drip irrigation. So we have vast reservoirs of savings out there mm-hmm. and reuse that we're just beginning to go for. And frankly, uh, Israel and Singapore provide an incredibly inspiring but also comforting story where we can essentially go shopping and take the bits we need at a pay that folks can afford. So effectively, it's the economy, stupid. It has nothing to do with regulation. Just give some people financial incentives and they will follow. No, not, not that simple. It's a combination of uh, all elements together. It's not a silver bullet that is going to solve the entire challenge. And it's definitely a combination of all of it and regulation and legal uh, framework are at the heart of this uh, reform. Tammy, you smiled when she talked about the lush green Scotland-type grass. First of all, it is a um, huge mean of closing the gap between production and demand. And there is a lot of usage of water, especially for gardening, which is not as sustainable as we would like it to be, also in Israel. So many times farmers, especially in the Western countries, would try to become more efficient because this is their business. Mm-hmm. Sometimes with domestic households, this is not the case, and especially where people are in a higher socioeconomic level, then they tend to use more water for different uses without being as conservatives about it. In Israel, the culture is tending to save, I think, more water than in other countries. People are more aware at the notion of the price of water, how scarce it is. But still, we also see in Israel that in drought years, people tend to be more aware of it and save more. And when there are more rainy years, or we talk about a lot of desalination that comes into the system, then people feel that maybe it's less important to save the water. And you see the water consumption coming up. In California, as you said, water is privately owned by people. Groundwater management was tough in California. And this is one of the solutions that Felicia Marcus presented. 
The legislature passed our groundwater management legislation in 2014, but we didn't do it as a top-down. We did it as, and I like this model, the locals have a certain amount of time to do it themselves. If they miss the deadlines, then we can step in and do it, which is much better. And so far at the first milestone, which happened this summer, which is organizing their groundwater sustainability agencies, over 99% compliance. And that's because they want to own their future, but it's hard to do because they're going to have to figure out how to limit their pumping together. But the fear of us coming in is enough to drive them together. Here's an incentive for you. I know. It makes me, you know, I hate, I prefer to be friendly Felicia rather than scary Felicia, but I will do whatever works to get the job done at the local level. And so far it's been very successful. And I think because there's not just one way to allocate water amongst yourselves, I think we'll have a more robust and durable system if we let the locals do it and we truly just step in where people are unwilling or incapable. So on one hand, you hold the carrots and on the other, the stick, and you decide when to use what. Right. And one prefers the carrot to the stick, but you can't be afraid to use the stick. Are you afraid to use sticks? Do you have sticks? I assume that as a regulator, you do. I think in Israeli regulation, we mostly go for the sticks and not for the carrots. <laughs> so we have, I think, a lot to learn from California about how the use of carrots can be beneficial and help the system. I would say that having public support in the things that we do is very, very important. And gaining public support mostly comes by... carrots in the right place and by people knowing that when people don't operate right then they get a stick so there's a combination of it but it has a lot to do with people and public feeling that the right things are are being done so it's definitely things that we have to take into consideration but sometimes reality forces us to use the certain tools in order to reach the goals that we need to reach. A big part of the solution in Israel to our water scarcity has to do with technology. We manufacture water, as Tammy said. It's either by desalination or by treating wastewater. Correct. Technology has a lot of uh, contribution to To the fact that we have a sustainable water uh, system that uh, functions well throughout the year 24/7 etc it has to do with water production as you said you mentioned desalination uh, reuse etc but it has to do also with the new methods of advanced management for water systems municipal or national in agriculture sophisticated uh, irrigation precision irrigation and The ability of a water manager of a water utility in every given city to take the right decisions regarding what type of water to use according to energy decisions, quality of water, availability, which in the past were decisions that were taken more based on gut feeling or traditional methodology. Those are decisions that nowadays are being taken based on actual real-time data. And this is a very big change that is now available due to sophisticated technologies that are implemented in uh, those systems. Now, whatever technology can 
offer, not always the regulator will say, I'm happy to see what you have to offer. You know each other for many years. You are f- friendly, but you are some type of rivals. Or am I mistaken? Oh, not rivals. <laughs> Definitely not rivals. As a regulator, one of the biggest challenges that we have is to see how we make the right regulation to take the new technologies and the other advancements that we have in the market and put them into work. And what we mainly have to make sure that our regulation doesn't stop it from happening. We can also... try to help it and try to you know put money on it or give some incentives to use it but mostly what we have to do is to take care that we don't hit the brakes on the system and prevent technology from coming into the system I would say that yes we are very good friends nevertheless there is tension between new technologies and startups and between regulation and the concept of being very cautious about adapting new concepts. It is obvious, it makes a lot of sense. So it's a very delicate dance that we have to dance together. The crucial part is to create the dialogue between the different players and allow the regulators to evaluate the technologies in a calm kind of atmosphere and let the technology act enter the market gradually. You don't want to be in a position that you risk the entire system with a new concept, burn the system, and then create a damage that is going to be kind of a shadow over the entire water system for years to come and uh, put all regulators in a bunker for the next 20 years. So the idea is to, to create this kind of delicate dialogue, let the technology enter gradually, and it's a process because adoption of a new technology is not something easy. In many cases, it needs a lot of cultural changes, technological changes, but at the same time, we do want to bring new technologies to the game. This is the way we can make our system better, more efficient, cost-effective, and give more. better service to the public. So if you're talking about this dance, this tango, mm-hmm. how early would you approach the regulator? The sooner the better. We have different meetings where we put the regulators in touch with technological companies, with academia. So it shouldn't be in the stage where they meet for the first time in this very formal meeting. committee that has to take dramatic decisions over the water system. It has to be done throughout the years or time that the technology is being developed. And my advice to entrepreneurs and to researchers to be in touch with the regulators from day one so that they would know and you can use their experience in order to guide your new technology to the right direction. I think in the last years we try to establish frames of pilot projects, which means that you take new technologies and you don't expose them to the whole system, but you try to build them in a sort of a, a lab environment, but in real environment, because they put it in real systems. What worked, and I think is still working greatly, is trying to pair the technology people with the suppliers. And a supplier comes with the new innovation and they come together and offer us to have a pilot project in a real system, but in a small scale of new technology. We try to both help it by money, 
but I think mostly what we do is we give a frame for it to happen, which would not happen in any other way if you would have to first approve the technology as something that can be put everywhere. It works very nicely, and we have now uh, over 40 uh, projects all over the country. For instance, small-scale decentralized uh, wastewater systems for remote areas, which is uh, an interesting process. So from the point of view of regulators, and this involves very much uh, also the uh, Ministry of Environment and Ministry of Health, the concept for many years was we want to have large-scale wastewater treatment plant in order to control all the time what is going on there and to be on the safe side of quality of uh, affluent that comes out of those wastewater plants. And then obviously you don't want, as a regulator, you don't want to have wastewater treatment plant all over the country that you cannot visit and control them on a daily basis. So the policy was to have big ones and fewer. But the technology keeps improving all the time. And we have now the ability to have very good, high quality, small scale wastewater treatment plant. And when you have those kind of plants, you save tons of money on infrastructure in order to transport wastewater and then bring back, in a way, the affluent for irrigation. So one of the projects that we have sponsored was this kind of small-scale wastewater treatment plant, and it is monitored and controlled 24-7 with remote sensors. But it was a process to bring those regulators from the Ministry of Environment and the Ministry of Health to the game. And it is understandable, but it was happening on the ground in a very nice dialogue and this tango that we are talking about. Seth Siegel. When people talk about Israel being fortunate in their water, or when they say that Israel succeeded in the water because they say Israel had no choice, well, that's ridiculous. Of course Israel had a choice. Israel could have restricted the flow of immigrants, had less people. Israel could have made a choice to import their food rather than grow their food. Israel could be more like the kingdom of Jordan, which is water-deprived, and that they don't have a flow of water into most homes every day of the week. So Israel had choices. What they did was they rejected the status quo, and they said, we want to be more like New York or London. If we want to be an advanced economy, we have to get on top of doing that. And because they came to conclude that there was no possibility that the existing water supply would be enough to fuel the growth of the society, both economically and in terms of population, that they dreamed of, they began planning as early as the 1930s on what they would need to do to develop their water resources. Now, to be crystal clear about this, it wasn't until after the state was declared in 1948 and until the early 1950s that they really began putting real time and money into the idea of developing alternative water sources. But here's the secret to Israel's success. Almost two-thirds of Israel's total water supply is manufactured water. It comes from either desalinated water or reused wastewater. Drawing to an end, I think that in this segment, we heard everything that you need to know about the Israeli water regulation. Are we missing something? I would love to say that we found the right solutions, that we are doing everything right, and you know we can just sit down and rest now. But unfortunately, climate change is a huge, huge 
challenge for us. We see that climate is hugely changing in the last years. We used to see droughts always in Israel, but the occurrence of droughts become more often. They are longer than what we used to be. There is less rain in the winter season, and the winter season becomes different than what we used to see. So even if in some periods of time we have the same amount of rain coming down, it becomes in shorter times and harder rains. And this actually brings less water to the water resources because much of the water, when there is a big storm, goes uh, to the sea and just uh, comes out of the water sector. We don't have the infrastructure to collect it, stormwater drains? First of all, not enough. And this is something that we probably would have to develop uh, more in the future. But scale matters here. So mm-hmm. when the rain comes down gradually and uniformly, then water infiltrates into the ground and fill the groundwater. And we are talking about hundreds of millions of cubic meters. This is not anything that you can build in an upper reservoir. So there's a lot of challenges in it. We have 600 million cubic meters of desalinated water compared to about 750 million that we use for domestic uses in Israel today. When we built it a decade ago, we thought that we can rest for about two decades. And we find ourselves now, a decade after it, with our reservoirs empty. Because we had five consecutive droughts that actually emptied our resources with all the desalination operating. It's just amazing. It's something that was not expected in any extreme uh, regime that we tested before deciding upon this desalination. So we still cannot rest and have to find the new means and the new resources in order to maintain the very strong economy that we have in Israel today. And definitely without the water, this strong economy cannot survive. Tami Shaw, Senior Deputy Director General for Regulation at the Israeli Water Authority, and Oded Distel, Head of Israel Newtech, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production.